John chapter 4, uh, starting in verse number 7. John writes, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. That's what happens when your eyes jump a line and you can't find the place where you were. John tells us that we're to love one another. And he says that in doing that, we are emulating God. And then there's that simple yet profound statement, God is love. And all that sounds very similar to what Brooks read a few moments ago from John chapter 13, where Jesus says that we are to love one another as he's loved us. And by this, everyone will know that we're his disciples. So we have some really noble, high-sounding sentiments here. But what do we mean? You see, I'm afraid that we use the word love pretty frequently, but when we really start to think about it as a concept, it's imprecise in the way that we use it. For instance, I love my wife. I'll admit to that. It's okay. I'm sure you're all relieved to hear that. I even bought her a card for Valentine's Day. Jennifer can back me up on that because we were there at the last minute at Walmart on the very same day at the same time. I also love the University of Texas to the chagrin of some of my uh, Aggie brethren here probably. But it's where I wanted to go to school as a kid. I worked hard to get there. I'm proud of my degree that I got there. Uh, when I still lived in Austin, we used to go to every home football game, and that was through some pretty sorry years there. So that tells you that I love the school. I also love ice cream to the point that I try not to keep it in the house anymore because I have no resistance to it. My sweet tooth's insatiable. I'll go in and I'll eat a bowl of ice cream before bed, and then I'll wake up in the morning, and of course, Abby's already gone off to school, so there's no one to stop me, and I'll say, hey, you know what sounds good for breakfast? Ice cream, and I'll go in and get some, and that's not a good thing. You see, I use the same word love to describe all of those feelings, but I trust you to know that I don't mean precisely the same thing when I use the word love about each one of those three things. I trust you to filter it through your own experience and to understand what I mean when I say that. Our English language is limited, just as all language is, but particularly it's limited when it comes to this idea of love. We use the one word love to capture what is in reality a lot of different feelings. We love ideas, we love beauty, we love our hometowns, we love our school, we love our pets, we love particular foods, we love a favorite color, we love books and movies, and on and on we could go with this. I love my wife, I love ice cream, I love winter, 
uh, whatever you want to fill in here, since we use the same word to express what is in reality several different emotions, the listener has to, to filter out what we mean here. So when I say, I love my wife, I trust you to hear that and to understand by that, well, he loves his wife in the way a man ought to love his wife. When I say, I love ice cream, I trust you to understand that I'm not weird. I don't love ice cream in the same way that I love my wife. I love ice cream in the way that somebody ought to love a food. Although I did just admit to sometimes eating it for breakfast, so maybe it goes a little beyond that. I don't know. But to confuse things even further, we use love frequently in uh, some common expressions. Love is something that we fall into. Love puts stars in our eyes. Love causes our hearts to flutter. Uh, The Beatles told us that all you need is love. We even get confused perhaps when it comes to the idea of Christian love. God is love, our text says. We also know that I'm to love the Lord, my God, with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. We're told, as we read a few moments ago, that we're to love one another. And that's how everyone will know we're disciples of Jesus. I'm to love myself. I'm to love my neighbor. I'm even to love my enemies. So what is love? What do we mean by that? And a lot of our confusion is because we use this one English word, and it's limited. All of us know that The New Testament wasn't originally written in English. It wasn't handed down in the King James Version to the apostles. It was written in Greek. And many of us probably know that our one word, love, does duty for translating three words for love in ancient Greek. Eros, phileo, and agape. We generally translate those with that one English word, love, because there's no other one word that can render them properly, but they all have different nuances. So when keeping with this word study we've been doing, I want us to think tonight about those three words and see how they can help us better understand the love that we need to cultivate as Christians. So the first word, eros. This word is actually not in the New Testament, but the concept is something that runs through the Old Testament and the New Testament, we see it come up quite a bit. And when we're talking about eros, we're talking about physical attraction. We're talking about sexual love. And when we bring up that subject in church, usually we have a couple of different reactions. There are some who sort of shift there nervously, uncomfortable that we're bringing this up. There are others that are shocked that we would talk about this sort of thing here. And I think part of the problem is that as Christians, we haven't always given biblical definitions to things the Bible talks about. And we have a a history of centuries here treating this as something that's bad, but we need to realize that eros is a gift from God. It's something that was part of his good creation back there at the very beginning. There's even a whole book of the Bible devoted to discussing it, the Song of Solomon, But again, that's not one that we, uh, I mean, can you think of the last time you studied the Song of Solomon in a Bible class? Uh, It'd be never, as far as I go. Now, of course, eros has limitations. Because of its intimacy, it does. So scripture clearly teaches that it's something that's only to be shared by two people, 
husband and wife who are committed to each other, who promise that for better or for worse, for richer or poorer, in sickness or in health, they're going to be by one another's side and they're going to keep loving each other for a lifetime. But in that proper context, when they make that commitment, they're given this gift from God of Eros. Now, as beautiful a thing as that is when rightly used, it also has its limitations because by its very nature, it's selfish. Fundamentally, it's about gratifying one's own desires. So while this is a a good thing, something God's given us as a gift, if it stands alone, it's going to fail because all of those imperfections come to the surface. Then there's the word phileo, secondly. This means brotherliness, companionship, friendship. Uh, In classical Greek, philos, the noun form, that was a friend or a loved one. And it's used in the New Testament, uh, usually of a a close personal relationship. Uh, It can also be used of a a boy-girl, you know, boy-meets-girl type relationship. We see that sometimes. Some of you probably remember, or at least you think you remember, this is one of those things that uh, we sort of idealize the past, and I'm not sure it was ever really like this, but some of you remember the good old Norman Rockwell days when you'd go down to the drugstore with your sweetheart and you would order a milkshake or you'd order a Coke or whatever and you'd be drinking out of it, you know, each with your own straw and the one glass. So I want you to, to picture that scene here, all right? Uh, drinking out of the one glass, you've each got your straw in there looking into each other's eyes and the boy says to her, I like you. And she says, I like you too. And he says, well, I really like you. I really like you too. He's nervous. I love you. What? Nothing? Oh no, go, go on, say it again. Well, don't laugh. I said, I love you. I love you too. And things progress, and next thing you know, he's saying, will you marry me? And she says, yes, and they get married, and they live happily ever after for six weeks. And at the end of six weeks, he looks up from behind his morning paper, and he says, I'm tired of eating burnt toast. And she says, well, people in Sudan are starving. You ought to be in the Sudan. They'd be thrilled to have any sort of toast at all, whether it was burned or not. And he says, well, with some of the meals I've been eating lately, maybe I'd be better off in Sudan. Well, if you like Sudan so much, why don't you move there? And he says, I think I will. And he gets up and he walks out and he slams the door. Maybe they make it 10 or 11 weeks, I don't know. I'm being facetious, but what we recognize there, unfortunately, is we've all seen relationships that are just about that solid, and they've ended almost that quickly over things just about that trivial. The problem is not that there's a lack of love in that relationship. There's love there. There's eros. There's phileo. They're both there. But phileo, too often, is a temporary type of love. That doesn't mean it's not a good thing. It's something that the New Testament speaks highly of when we're talking about these close personal friendships, but it also can fade away 
It says, I love you as long as things are going good. I love you as long as it's smooth sailing, as long as it's convenient for me and there's no problems here. But, but that's not the depth that's needed in a marriage. And it's certainly insufficient to characterize Christian love. So while phileo, again, is a gift from God, it's not enough. That brings us to the third word, agape. Agape is the word that's used here in 1 John chapter 4. It's the word that's used in John chapter 13. Interestingly, this was a word that was not frequently used in classical Greek. Christians adopted this word. It was already out there, but Christians adopted it, and they poured the content into it. They're the ones who gave it its significance, and this is the love that God discloses as his own nature. And this is the love that we're to have, reflecting that love of God out into the world. And it's different from those other two types of love because it is unselfish. It's a love that puts the needs of the object of love first. It's a love that's not concerned with gratifying the lover, but it's concerned with seeing that the needs of that object of love are met. And the lover is willing to make any sacrifice necessary in order to meet the needs of that object of love. And that's precisely what God did. God looked down at humanity. He saw our helpless state, and he didn't think about his own condition. He didn't think about what would satisfy him. Instead, in Christ, he willingly sacrificed himself, came down to this earth, lived with us, breathed our air, walked the dusty roads that we walk, experienced life the way that we live it. Agape is the kind of love that reaches down and picks up clay and anoints blind eyes. Agape is the love that reaches out and touches lepers who the world regards as unclean, won't have anything to do with them. Agape is the love that stands in mourning and solidarity at the graveside of a loved one. Agape is the love that blesses little children and warmly receives them when they were so overlooked in ancient society. Agape is the love that doesn't regard itself but unselfishly goes to the cross, even gives its life. That's what it means when it says God is love. And that's the type of love that we're to have if we're going to be disciples of Jesus. You see, if God had loved us with eros, or if God had loved us with phileo, he would have packed his bags the first time there was any sort of trouble. Whenever he got the rejection, the resistance that he met when he came to this world, Jesus would have said, that's it, all right, I've had enough. I'm going back where I'm wanted and appreciated. I don't have time to deal with you people. But that's not what he did. It was agape love. And so he was more concerned about us than he was concerned about his own wants or his own needs. And that's what should characterize us as Christians. Do I love my wife with eros? Yes. Do I love Abby with phileo? You bet. But all of those are captured under that umbrella of agape, and that's so much more important because it says, even if things aren't going good, even if we disagree, I'm not just looking out for myself, get up and, and walk out because it's more convenient. I'm going to stay here. That's agape love. So when we see here, God is agape. 
It means that he doesn't just love us with a surface type love. He loves us with a love that is sacrificial, that is self-denying, that has our best interest at heart. He ultimately emptied himself to express that love. You want to see agape in action, then look at 1 Corinthians 13. That's what we want to look at as we close tonight. Now, we all know this chapter. These are familiar, familiar words. They're beautiful words, but they're also practical words because this tells us this is how agape love acts. So in verse number four, Paul says, love is patient. If I have agape for you, I won't get in a hurry if things don't go the way I want them to. I'm going to wait for you. I'm going to wait for things to change, and I trust that you're going to wait for me too and be patient in return. He says that love, agape, is kind. I won't say cruel or mean or hurtful things to you because you're the object of my love. He says that it does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant. I won't be proud. I won't be looking out for myself because I'm more concerned about you than I am me. It is not rude. It is, does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. And I wish that the ESV translated it this way, but that resentful, that's literally, it doesn't count up wrongdoing. It keeps no record of wrongs. And that's such a, a beautiful thought. It doesn't hold grudges. And I'm not going to count up all the things that you do wrong. I'm not concerned about that. And I'm not going to be easily angered I'm not going to throw tantrums when I don't get my way anymore. It does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, or trusts the way some translations have it. It trusts all things. If I trust, I have to open myself up and be vulnerable. Hopes all things, endures all things. God's love for us is exactly like that. It perseveres. Even when we reject him, even when we try to push him away, he's still there loving us through it all. Agape never fails. In 1 John chapter 4 and verse number 19, the apostle cries out, we love because he first loved us. And what we know and what we've talked about is that Christ came and died for us. That's what demonstrates that love. Do you believe that God loves you? Do you believe that Christ died for you? I look around this audience tonight. I'm pretty sure everyone here tonight does that. But the question is, do you love him in response? If you love him, he says, you'll keep his commandments. Do you do that? Do you love one another? Do we love our brothers and sisters in that same way God loves us with agape love? By this shall all men know that we're his disciples. Do we reflect God's love as we should? I'm sure we could all get better at that. But if you're in a situation tonight where you need to make changes in a public way in order to be back in that right relationship with God, I urge you, take the opportunity he gives you right now while we stand and while we sing.